And that's Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. I'm reading from the NIV. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And it says, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Another translation says they added to the church daily those who were being saved saved. I don't know about you this morning, as, as I um, sampled the atmosphere as we were having coffee together, the place was buzzing. It seemed to be buzzing more than usual. And I was trying to make up my mind, is this the presence of God or all the pick and mix and the E numbers that's flowing around everybody's bloodstream right now? Um, I, I, I like to believe it's the presence of God and the Holy Spirit, and not the pick and mix. But maybe we could have pick and mix every week, perhaps. I don't know. But it seemed to be, maybe perhaps if the sun is shining today, perhaps it's all sorts of things. But I want to take up a new theme for a few weeks. And my theme is entitled Ecclesia. And I'll explain what that means and what that's about. But it's looking at church and what church is. And looking at first century values in a tw- with a 21st century vigor and looking at the church, and uh, that's where we're going to go for a short series for the next few weeks when we come together and I'm speaking. One of the things I've noticed is that there is a vast sea change coming upon our nation, upon the nations of the world, and also on the, the life of church. Things are changing again, as it were. There are many things in the 22, 23 years of full-time Christian ministry that I've been um, an ordained minister, a pastor within in the Elam Pentecostal churches, and I've been a Christian a little bit longer than that, I've noticed over the years that different seasons and phases and changes have come, and I just feel that there is something major that's happening, not only economically in the li- our lives and around the world and in our nation, and socially with attitudes that are changing uh, in our nation, but also things within the life of church and spiritually speaking, in the broader life of church in general in our nation. And um, in some ways, the church is coming under a different and fresh sense of pressure from within, as changes are coming within the life of church and also without in life and around the world and outside in life. You know, we face an age that is uh, materialistic in nature. By that, I mean that we what we see is what you get. It's in the, it causes us to live in the here and now. You might not have a lot of money and buy a lot of things, but we live in a material world, a world that is governed by what you see and what you get. And that has even invaded and pervades the life of church. I say that because if you say that we're going to have a prayer gathering, you'll get X amount of people that will turn up to that, perhaps. Um, if you said we'd have something else, you'd get another amount. And we live in an age where the spiritual dimension, the eternal, perhaps, has been encroached upon by the material and it pervades life and society secondly it's become very individualistic it's come full circle but where the me my and I our rights and who I am pervades it's not wrong to have rights and I've spoke about that and it's good in actual fact 
but it's come to the fore whereby it's me. And yet the Bible is written in a context of us and collective. Uh, Jesus was brought up in an environment in the East that looked at the collective dimension of the family. We are in the family of God, all of us together. You are an individual saved, your name's in the book of life. Absolutely true. But also there's this collective dimension. And so the individual has come to the fore. So that we hear today that things like clubs, organizations, uh, are on the wane. Uh, whether, across the board, where people are now stressing more their personal, their life, who I am. Has come. And the third thing is we live in a, a society that's consumer-orientated. It's linked to materialism and being individualistic. And the third thing is this, this idea of a consumer society. Perhaps after the war years, we didn't have the. We were, people were still rationed up into the early 1950s, uh, so I'm told. And so there wasn't so much to spend and buy. But in the 60s and the 70s comes this era where this consumer society kicks in, and that's our society. We're told to get out of a fix, to get out of a crash, we need to spend more, borrow more, to spend more, and that will get us out. It's a consumer type of society. And linked with materialism, individualistic. Me, my, and I. And this idea of get and buy and have and consume. And what are you going to give me? Basically, consumer. You might not buy lots of things, but the consumer spirit says, what are you going to do for me? What can you give me? What can I get? Now, to a degree, there's, that's normal. That's life. And there's nothing wrong in that to some degree. But when it's of the degree in which our age we now live in, something has to give. Hence, we have what's called a crash. You think, why? Because something has to give. You cannot live like that. Jesus said... Seek what? Seek first the kingdom of God and all of this, all the things you need will be given unto you. So Jesus knows that we need and what we need, not our greeds. And yet something has to give. So it's in that framework and that sort of society that I want to speak for a little while and uh, look at a way forward. You know, it wouldn't have, um, might, shouldn't be news to you, but on the news, we've seen Christianity in the headlines and not for necessarily something good, but where a number of Christians have gone to the European Court of Human Rights, um, stressing their personal right to either wear a cross or practice as a Christian, or um, um, perhaps not marry a certain people group that is not in conjunction with the teachings of the Bible. Someone is a registrar that has gone to the Court of Human Rights. Another is a person that is looking to continue to wear their cross, as long as it isn't a health and safety hazard. And... Um, we're seeing Christianity um, come to a place where it could almost be discriminated against and marginalized against also. Um, it's okay to uh, be of a, a, another faith-based group and to wear something and do something, but not for another. And so this is all going on. And into this morass and into all this sort of atmosphere and all the sea change that's going on in life and society and uh, what's going on in our hearts we want to look at what is church? What's church about? Is it outmoded? Is it outdated? Is the day, are the days numbered for the church? My answer to that is going to be no, they're not. But we really need to know what church is about. Has the church had its day? You know, there are some Christians calling. So that's from without. But within, within the church across the world, there are now uh, strong voices calling for a radical change in church. New forms of church, what's called the emerging church. Some saying that almost the way in which we've done things doesn't work anymore. There now needs to be a radical shift, a, re, a new change, 
almost to pull apart something, to reconstruct something. And it's frightening talk. It's happening within the church. It's something that we perhaps should face. It should be aware of. Maybe you're not aware. But there's a huge debate that's going on at the very core and center of the heart of the church. And some people are now saying, what is church? What are we about? What's, where's it all going? Where are we going? What should we be? How should we be? What should we be doing? I want to look at that in the weeks ahead. Some Christians are hanging on to certain traditions in a reaction to the radical voices, hanging on to certain traditions for dear life. There's a radical reaction to the radical voices that are out there, even within the heart and life of the church. And so some Christians are hanging on to certain traditions for dear life, bewildered by the onslaught of change in life, our society and the world. In other words, stick to what you know. It's always work. Let's stick with it. Let's hold on to it. It's like a bit like a life boy. Everything else is going down. But let's hold on to this. And so within the church and outside of church, there's lots of voices in, out, shake it all about, whatever's going on. There's all sorts of stuff happening. And we really need to know. I want to know because I think there's a brilliant future, a great future, an amazing future for the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about the Latter-day Saint version necessarily, but the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ. And it's that that we want to look at and I want to share. And I'm really excited for us to look at what is church. And we're going to look at this. So today, really, is by way of a brief introduction to a series over the next few weeks. And we shall be coming back to Acts chapter 42 and looking at some of these, this picture of early church life. It was vibrant, vivacious, alive, courageous, faithful, unstoppable. They had warts and all, and they had sin in their camp as well, but they dealt with that. And we're going to look at what it is to be alive, courageous, vivacious, We feel that God is speaking to us as a church to have courage. There's a lot of words coming out from within the body of our own church and without about being courageous. Becky shared, Becky Sanders shared last week about fresh things and like Joshua having courage to embrace and go for God now and step up and step forward and go for God and be courageous and uh, really go for God. And so we'll need courage to hold on to and lay hold of the things that God is saying to us, maybe realigning our hearts and lives as a church with what is church. And it's that journey that I'm excited to look at in the days ahead. You know, um, the Apostle Paul said a number of things about church. You don't have to turn to it because we won't have the time perhaps. And Jesus said some things about church, exciting things, because the church, the days are not numbered. The church is an exci- should be an exciting, vivacious, alive place to be. But Jesus has a view on how church should be and what is the church. And it's that that we want to align our hearts with. You know, Paul said in the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians rather, chapter 3, speaking about the mystery of God, which is the good news of salvation, that the Gentiles are included with the Israelite people. The Jews and the Gentiles are now included together as the house of God. And Paul says, this is a mystery, and the good news of the mystery is this, that salvation has come to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews, and it's a mystery that's been revealed. Now, that's the background to Ephesians 3, and he goes on to say this about that mystery of the good news. In verses 10 to 11, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose 
which he has accomplished in Christ our Lord. Amazing words. That now, through the church, the manifold, it's variegated. It's like a diamond. You look at the face of a diamond, it's manifold. It glistens in many ways. So the church is manifold, variegated. It's alive. There's so many parts to it. Wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose which the accomplished in Christ Jesus the Lord. In other words, it's through the church that God's wisdom, mystery, and his wisdom is revealed to the universe. That's pretty amazing. Through you and me, it's to the universe, on display to the universe, principalities, powers. To all of creation, it's through the church that God's wisdom is displayed. That wisdom is on the back of the revelation of the mystery. The mystery is that God's salvation is for all. The good news is that Jesus comes to bring us all back to God for all who will believe in him. And it's displayed through his collected together ones, the church. It's a manifold wisdom. That's pretty incredible wisdom all wrapped up in you and me. It's in the church. The church has got a great part to play. It depends what you view as church and that's what we're going to look at. But First of all, get in your heart and get in your mind that God's not going to give up on us, church. God's not going to give up on his people. And this is why Jesus said this before Paul wrote what we've just looked at. Jesus said these words. They're very famous words. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God's got a vision and a plan. And Paul writes about this after Jesus says those amazing words. He's not going to give up. God's not going to give up on his church. Not only is he not going to give up, but he's going to display his wonder and his love and his miracles and his purpose and his wisdom through the church to the world. This is why a man called Bill Hybels said this. Pastors an amazing church, Willow Creek, probably about 20 or 30,000 people and growing in the United States of America. And he says this, he says, the local church is the hope of the world and the future rests primarily in the hands of its leaders. What an amazing statement. He, this is Biblical, because God's got a plan for the church. He says this, and this is a man with a church, probably about 30,000 people, calls it the local church. Look at this. He says, the local church is the hope of the world. Get that in your heart right now. Hope of the world, and the future rests primarily in the hands of its leaders. So what is the church then? What is the church? A few minutes, and we'll come to a close to set the scene. The church is this. This is the church. The word church is a confusing word. It's a confusing word because it sort of traces its translation back to sort of the medieval period, sort of the period 600 to maybe about 900 AD, something like that. And uh, it's a word that comes from sort of an Anglo-Saxon society whereby villages... Small communities, as the Christian message spread, a village and a small community would have been dominated by a particular building in that village, and it would have been a place of worship. And that place of worship was called, the building, a church, a place of gathering for Christians. And in the medieval period, it was the name given to the building. And the building, where every little village, I don't know about you, but you can go to some little Derbyshire village in the middle, you can go to a place and be on a hill, and they'll be absolutely in the middle of nowhere, and you think, What's this church doing here? There would have been a little village and a little hamlet there, perhaps. And our nation has been dotted with churches that go back to the Anglo-Saxon days, and even before. And the, the vision and strategy of the 
Catholic Church goes back a long way ago, was to put a Christian building in every area. And from that building, the monks and would go into the area and spread the message, uh, heal the sick, uh, medical help and care, feeding the poor, bringing education. And gradually, and that's how the Christian message was spread from strategic centers. I'm being a bit simplistic with my history here to the purists amongst you. And I know Richard's probably studying some of this in his master's that he's doing. But it's roughly the sort of idea. And then villages and towns were built around and hamlets around the church. And, it was for, and then the lord or the baron or the squire would have looked after the, the, the church. And the church would have sort of been hand in glove with the wealthy um, baron or whoever it was. And so the community was around this building. And the particular title for the building was church. It was a name given to the building. And within time, translations of the Bible that we had, that name for the building came to signify all of us, all of God's people. It, was, uh, it became a bit confusing, really, because it's not quite accurate. The actual translation in the Bible isn't quite accurate. The translation of making the building called this church, the way it was translated. And so we have in our our, our early translations of the Bible, this term church for the building. Because it was the strategy of Christianizing the nation to plant these buildings where Christians obviously gathered and and Christian people gathered and then took the nation. But basically, this is what sort of happened. But in actual fact, the... Word church, the word that's been translated church, which was an Anglo-Saxon word which sort of designated the building, really, if we come back a little bit and go back to the original translation of the Bible, the word is ecclesia. It's a Greek word. And the word was found in ancient Greece. It's not necessarily a Christian word, but it's a word found in ancient Greek. And it literally means this, assembly of, or congregation. And it was... Given to, in classical Greek, a town council or an assembly or a gathering of people who gathered together. They were called out, gathered together at the gates or at the forum or at the town square to gather together to bring administration and government for that place. It was secular in its terming. It wasn't necessarily for, necessarily for worship as per se, but it referred to a gathering, a calling out and gathering together of a group of people who were given administration or authority and they were to govern and they would come to either by the gates of a city, it was a governing place or the, the town square. Now we find in what's called the Septuagint, which is the sort of Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ecclesia appears in the Old Testament when it's given for God's gathered people. The assembly or congregation. And Israel is referred to as the ecclesia. God's assembly. God's congregation. God's gathered people. And we find in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament written in Hebrew, but there was a translation because the Jews spread around the known world. And at that time in the known world, the Greek was a common language. So the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in it, they... They took this secular term, gathering, congregation, assembly, called out, gathered together, and referred to it to God's chosen. Because it was God's people who were given administration, government for the earth, to share in the earth, and called, and they were called out and gathered together. And 
into the New Testament then, we find in the writings here, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, we read, interesting how the NIV, the translators have translated this, probably, I say probably correctly, you'll see in verse 47, it says, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In another translation, a number of translations, it says, and added to the church daily those being saved. Added to their number daily is probably more accurate. Added to the gathering, added to the assembly, added to the congregation. That word there, where they say added to their number daily, is ecclesia. Interesting. Now, you might say, don't baffle us with science. I'm not seeking to try and do that with theology. But what I'm saying is this. So into the New Testament now, we have the writers. And when Jesus said, I will build my church, he said, I will build my ecclesia. When Paul says the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the church, it's in the ecclesia. And it's not referring to the Anglo-Saxon building, but ecclesia is this. It's the called out, gathered together people in God. That is the very difference. And so when we say there's a future for the church, there's a future for wherever people are called out and gathered together in God, me and you. When we gather together, so wherever you gather together, there's a future because that is God's church. Not the building as such, but it's the people as such. This is why there's a call for a radical view of what church is. Wherever God's people, where God is at the center, Jesus has to be at the center. Otherwise, it could be a fishing club. Mick Hewitt loves fishing, fly fishing. He can have the Mick Hewitt Fly Fishing Club. It could be called out and gathered together. That could be an ecclesia. But we're talking about an ecclesia that gathers in God. Not saying it's a bad thing, Mick, by the way. I'm not putting you down for that. And if you want to join his Fly Fishing Club, go and do it, folks. But, now this is highly important. I stress it. Because this is amazing and it's radical. It makes for something that is alive and dynamic. So it's all about people. For God so loved people. He loves the world. He loves people. He sends his son in what? As a person. A real man. It was called Emmanuel in the flesh. It's about people. God loves people. The church is people. So we're the called out, gathered together ones in God. God has to be at the center Our traditions are not at the center, but God is at the center. And so there's certain things that we might hold on to. And if God's not holding them, we better let go of them. I'm going to say that again. There are certain traditions that we might hold on to. And if God's not holding them, we better let go of them. Because if we hold on to them, we'll go down with them. I'm saying this now. I really mean this. If there are certain things that God isn't holding, we need to let go of. But I tell you what, if there's things that God holds then we need to hold those. We really desperately need to hold those. So we need to know what is church. And that's what the road of discovery is going to be in the next few weeks. So people called out and gathered together. Otherwise, it's any old group. Uh, A lady called Bridget Willard said this on the back of this translation. The church isn't where you meet. Um, Church isn't a building. Church is what you do. Church is who you are. Church is the human outworking of the person of Jesus Christ. Let's not go to church. Let's be the church. When Jesus says, I will build my church, he says, I will build you. Called out, gathered together ones in God. That's the key. As we gather together in 
God and make Jesus be God-centered people, Jesus-centered people. Now, so I think we've made our point. Uh, uh, yeah, it's probably as clear as that. So there we go. So that's what church is, folks, and that's what we're going to look at. But church isn't just, um, it's not just static. We don't just stay put. Church is dynamic. It's alive. It's people that are alive. It's not inanimate. It's not in bricks and mortar necessarily, although you, it's where we meet. You need a good place to meet, but it's not static. Church is alive. It's dynamic. It's people, and we're to be alive. Um, yeah, we, the disciples were told on, on Resurrection Sunday, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. He's alive. And that isn't just for Easter Sunday. It's don't look for Jesus in static dead things. He's not there. He's risen. He's alive. And so church is about being alive. A person that's alive. I'm alive in Christ. You know, I'm alive to God. You know, you can speak to someone and you can say, have you heard me? Are you, are you listening to me? They're not alive to you. They're not listening to you because their heart and mind is somewhere else perhaps. And to be alive is to be in the pre- now. Now with God. Jesus here. I'm in touch. I'm not just um, living on a baptism in the Spirit and becoming a Christian 10, 20 years, 5 years, a week ago. But now, today, that's why it's so exciting today to be a buzz around the place as people are embracing God. And when we began to reach out and pray for one another, Jesus here, this is the church, this is our moment, this is today. And this is what God wants us to go for and seize the day and go for the day. It's about being present and alive today. When you get that understanding, it makes for something amazing. We come with that expectation. I'm not coming to see what they're going to do for me. What's he going to tell me? How are they going to lead me? But I've come to be. I've not come to get, but I've come to be alive. And when we come like that, wherever you gather, whether it's at work with a friend to pray about something, you're, you're at your gym club and you're speaking to someone, we're together like we are now. Wherever we are, we come with that attitude, that heart, it makes for the most amazing, dynamic journey possible. So the church isn't static, and you can tell from my excitement that I believe that. It's dynamic, people of God, people of momentum. I believe that we're to be people of momentum. The church is to be on the move, to be people of momentum, to not just be static, held in a building, held back, but to be advancing. The kingdom of God advances. It's those that take it by force, the, those that are faithful, that violently move by force, not by a violent faith, Jesus talks about. Those that hold on and go for God. Passionate. We're talking, we've got a lot of words being said about being passionate, courageous, standing up to the mark, wanting to go for God. It's those type of people that says, this is my church. This is my church. And Jesus loves to build you and I that way. Now, I know this is why I believe we're people of momentum. In Galatians chapter 5, we're encouraged to do what? Keep in step with the Spirit. A few weeks ago, uh, I've spoke a few times. I've probably spoke now at Sawley Outreach and our evening meeting, Derby Road. I I preached a message about keeping in step with the Spirit. It's all about momentum. If you haven't heard that, listen to it. Because I did this on purpose, knowing that I'd be speaking as I am now. There's a method in my madness. There's a vision that I have. And um, if you haven't heard what, uh, what I did share, or if you weren't in those meetings, you can go online. You can listen for free. It's on iTunes if you've got a smartphone. You can go on our church website if you haven't got a smartphone. And you can listen. You can listen to it for free. If you're like Margaret Saunderson, you've got a nice swanky iPad. And it's amazing. And she's into technology. And she's at the forefront of it, Margaret is. You can listen to it for free. Isn't that amazing? Come on. So keep in step with the Spirit. And I've speak, been speaking about momentum. But, you know, we're to keep in step with the Spirit. People, 
To be in step with God, not to lag behind, not to run ahead. That's a message of momentum. The Holy Spirit's on the move. Enough said. I've spoke a lot about that. Listen to it. It's online. You know, the early Christians were called people of the way. Before we were called Christians, it's not until Acts chapter 11 at Antioch, we were called gatherings like this, Christians. And that was a derogatory term. It wasn't a very nice term. They were called Christians because they were followers of Christ. They looked like Christ, acted like Christ, talked like Christ, and did the things of Christ. And so the people of the day thought, how crazy are they to live and believe in a man who had died for them? They thought it was ridiculous, so they called them Christians and made fun of them. But prior to that, they were called believers, people of the way. It's in the book of Acts. Have a read of it. I'm not making it up. Interestingly, people of the way. It's a way of life. It's a way. It's a journey. It's a pathway. It's momentum. We're people of the way. We are to be followers of Christ. It's interesting. They were called Christians. Why? Because they looked and acted like Christ. Jesus said this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. We're to follow, to have momentum, to be on the move. Not sit back, not dig in, not hang on for dear life. Hold the fort for I am coming. Don't like that verse. Don't like that. There's no holding of any fort, I don't believe. We may be pressed, hard pressed, beaten down. In the news, around trending on Twitter at the moment, an Iranian pastor being released in Iran. Believers being put to death. Great, that's good news. I mean, that's a good, something great to hear. But, you know, we may be hard-pressed. We may be bashed and beaten and pushed back. But we're not to hold the fort. We're to advance, to move, to follow, be followers of the way. And so again and again, across the New Testament, we have this understanding of momentum. So we're to be people on the move and alive and to go for God. Church, we're called to come out of the world, and yet we're still in it, to be different, to be together, to be in that world together, and to be on the move, centered in Christ and holding to him. And through the church that God has ordained, this is the hope for the world, through people. We know there's choices that we can make. And with this, I want to close with the choice. There's a good choice and a bad choice. And we can learn from a man called Abraham and a man called Lot. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me and with this we're going to close. So what's our choice this morning? To go for God and there's some choices that you can make. Look at this. Turn to the book of Genesis just very briefly and with this we'll close. I want to end with a choice. And Genesis chapter 13. So what are we going to do? Who are we going to follow? Where are we going to go? What's church going to be like? And in Genesis chapter 13, uh, it's entitled uh, Abraham and Lot Separate. Let me read it just for a moment. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev uh, with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had uh, become very wealthy in um, livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now, Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. They were getting very wealthy, both of them and their families. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great 
that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites, the Perizzites, were also living in the land at that time. So it was a big crowd of them. Uh, So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and I or between your herdsmen and mine. For we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. And if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. In other words, Abram, Abram, it's before he became Abraham, but Abram said, you take first choice. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. Lot, you have the first choice. I thought that was pretty gracious of him. What an amazing guy. They were both wealthy. But look at this. Choices matter. The choices you and I make have eternal repercussions. And I'm not being dramatic. Look at this. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Ur. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are where you where you are and look north and south east and west and all the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust then your offspring could be counted go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you go walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I am giving to you so Abraham moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Choices matter. The choice that you make for family, life, church, matter. And here we have Abram and Lot. And Abram said, you choose Lot. So Lot looked. And Lot's choice was a choice that led him to go and live. He saw the land look great in a certain area. He thought, I'll be greedy. I'll go there and I'll go and buy these great trendy cities as well. And I'll have the best of both worlds. I'll have a trendy city to live by and everything that goes with it. And I'll have all of this land and I've got first choice. So off he goes and he makes his choice. But Abraham chooses God's way. He chooses to go God's way. And God says, I will give you more than you could ever have thought or asked or imagined. For Lot, the story goes a bit later, that he made a wrong choice because he took his family to live near cities that were evil. And it affected him and his family. And they lost their lives. The choices you and I make in God. So we've got to be God-centered choices, haven't we, as church? Choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be God or man? As for me and my house, says the word of God, I will serve the Lord. And you know, this morning, we have a choice. We have a choice. We can choose an Abraham choice, which is to go God's way. And that might be a way that says, okay, God, I'm not sure where this might take me, but I'm going to go your way. And then God then says, right, now that you've chosen, I'll give you all of this. It's going to be amazing, church. Or we could go away that says, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. We make man-made choices because they look good. They sound good. Lot made a man-made choice. He saw that the, vid- the cities looked good. His choice was made on the here and now. What he could only see in life. 
But Abraham's choice was a choice that was faithful and could see in God. And it's, that is the key for the church today. The key for the church is to make choices that are godly, God-given. Not airy-fairy, but are choices that are spiritual, that are God, that are faithful, that are courageous. And it might mean that the choices we make, we've never been this way before. It might mean that the things we do, I haven't done it like this before. But if God's in it, God will do it. And if God's not in it, it won't happen. And that's the way that I would see it. But I tell you what, if the church, if we make choices that, oh, that's the way, that's what everyone, that's what we're told, that's what looks good. And it might be good and it might be right to do. But if it's man-made, it will affect us in a way that they lost their lives. But we want to choose God's way. Let's stand together as we close in. We're going to pray together, folks. Choices. Which way? Whom? Choose this day. Whom you will serve. Church, who are we going to serve? You wouldn't be here today, I know, but... Choose this day whom you will serve. What choices are you making for your family, for our lives? What are you looking at? What are we doing? As a church, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? I tell you what, there's a great future for your life, your family, your home, who you are personally, your children, our upbringing, our church, our nation. If we choose God's way, if we choose God's way, blessed. I tell you, it's amazing. And that's my desire. And our desire is to have courage And go God's way now. And that's the type of way. And this is the way that we're going to look to go. But choose this day. Join me as we lift our hands to heaven, shall we? Let's pray together right now. In your own words. Let's break the sound barrier individually. And just call upon God. Says, I choose today to serve you, God. As for me and my house, says the writer, I will serve the Lord. Let's call upon God. Let's call upon him right now. And say, I choose to serve you, Lord. Maybe you're not sure the road ahead. Maybe you're worried about life and decisions and finance and home and job. Maybe you're concerned about what a doctor has said to you. But right now, let's just choose this day who we serve. Come on, folks. Let's just lay hold of that just for a moment or two over our own lives. This is something very personal for you. I realize that. So you just do that for your life. I'll pray over us as a church in a minute. Father God, I'm so thankful for everyone that's gathered here today and for all those that maybe can't be here today and through, through sickness or holiday or work. I'm just so thankful for your house. I'm so thankful for your people. What a gr- I'm just so glad I'm here today. I'm just so glad you've chosen me to be right here, right now. And I just want to look to you and I want to make my choices in you, what I see in you, not what I see on the earthly. It does not mean I'm going to hide my head in the sand. I'm not going to do that, Lord. But I'm going to choose this day to serve you. We're going to choose the church to serve you. And if it means courage in the face of things that don't seem to be working the way in which we hoped or saw. But we just choose to serve you. See our hearts, Father. See our lives. See our homes. See our families. See our choices, Lord. Will you, Holy Spirit, just touch our hearts. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said you will build your church, your ecclesia. The gathered ones, you'll build us and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Thank you that we are the hope for the world. May we discover this and be alive to this in the days and weeks ahead. In your name and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.